Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner, here as always with my friend and comrade, Derek Davison. And we're excited to be welcoming to the podcast for the first, but probably not the last time, Lauren Turek. Uh, Lauren is an associate professor in history at Trinity University and also is the author of To Bring the Good News to All Nations, Evangelical Influence of Human Rights and U.S. Foreign Relations, uh, which is in the Cornell U.S. and the World Series, right? It is indeed, yes. Yes, and the Cornell U.S. and the World Series is also home to the greatest book of all time, Democracy in Exile. <laughs> of course. Um, so it's uh, it's an honor and a pleasure to have a fellow series author on. Uh, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you all. So you recently wrote uh, an article for World Politics Review on the role that evangelical Christians are playing in U.S. foreign policy today. But you are, in fact, an expert on evangelicals and U.S. foreign policy more broadly. So before we get into the topic of your article or what's going on today, maybe you could just describe for listeners like me who didn't grow up uh, around evangelical Christians, what does that term mean? How is it distinguished from other forms of Protestant Christianity? And what are some of the basic ideological, you know, orientations of these groups. Yeah, absolutely. And I will start by saying uh, defining evangelicals is a, a huge debate within religious studies. And uh, so so we're going to we're going to dive in here. But know that at the outset that this is something that scholars like to argue about all the time. They even like to argue about what religion is. So they're a, they're a busy bunch over there. Um, I also did not, uh, I'm not evangelical. I did not grow up in the faith tradition. So my understanding of the faith tradition comes from a lot of reading about their beliefs. And so I've uh, examined a lot of definitions that scholars have provided. And there's one that I find really useful. And so there's this sociologist of religion, Mark Shibley, and he defines evangelicals as a kind of broad umbrella group of Protestant Christians who have had the following things. Um, They've had a born-again experience. So they converted to evangelicalism by having this born-again experience that has given them a sense that they have a a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. They also accept the Bible as their core authority, not just in matters of faith, but also in terms of the conduct of their life. Lord, here's an ignorant question from a Jew. Do uh, do, 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 Do they accept supersessionism? As, a, as an approach, so that the New Testament superseded the Old Testament, basically, because um, I had uh, had close evangelical friends at points, and, and some people were, were doing things like keeping kosher, you know? Um, so oh, yeah, yeah, there's a whole, I mean, the thing is, like, so there's a lot of different types and, and sort of groups of evangelicals, and so there are certainly some, I think, who might embrace, there are, there are many that do, yeah, embrace some of those like weird ideas, but yeah, for the most part, they they think yeah that the the New Testament is their is their core. That's the kind of core. Got it. Core cool. Sorry. About that. Yeah. Yeah. No. No. That's it's a good it's a good question. Um, the thing is the thing I just want to stress with evangelicals is they they're actually quite diverse. So you'll find all sorts of things. Um, uh, but anyway, the, but the third the third sort of core thing is that they are committed to spreading their religion, their faith word of the gospel through witness. So going out and doing it, missionary work. And I, I think this is actually a really helpful definition because it is it is broad. So 
encompass a lot of different groups within evangelicalism, but it's also both practice and belief. Um, so it is what they're doing, but also what they believe. Uh, and so it gives us a chance to look at like, you know, in terms of thinking about what evangelicals are out doing in the world, it helps us get a sense of that. It also takes into account all of those, you know, that doesn't rule out supersessionism or not. It's it's open to a wide array of particular views. It also encompasses a lot of different views about eschatology or, or what the end times will look like. Uh, and so I, I like that kind of capacious definition. I find it really helpful. Um, so there's the other thing we should note is that um, expressions of evangelicalism really vary depending on race, uh, region, culture. Um, as evangelicalism kind of spread broadly throughout the throughout the world, people ad- adapted and adopted it. And so I think the, the bigger tent we have to make sense of who counts as an evangelical is useful for scholars. <laughs> um, I'm sure others would like to kind of uh, be more maybe specific or, or, or discreet about who they're defining, but I want I want to be as broad as possible. I think it's useful. Well, we are a capacious podcast. You know, yeah. we have very broad and expanded <laughs> minds. So uh, that that's absolutely fine here. Um, so why don't we talk a little bit about evangelicals and uh, U.S. foreign relations? Because obviously this is a topic that I, 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 I teach on or I've taught on this topic before in terms of the broad sweep of U.S. foreign relations history. And ev- evangelical Christianity is, is there from the beginning. But I'm no expert. So maybe you could give a gloss on, you know, from the revolution to 1968, uh, <laughs> evangelical influence and U.S. foreign policy. Go. It's like an oral. Yeah, you have about five minutes. Exam. Uh, yeah, so I, I think one of the things that's helpful if we, we, it actually is helpful to kind of break this up by time, right? Because, you know, we know that um, evangelicalism as a religious movement starts to take hold uh, fairly early in U.S. history during uh, the First Great Awakening in the 17th 30s and 1740s, there's all of these revivals that take place and folks are kind of riding through the colonies. Um, And then the thing is, though, you know, and I think there have been arguments made about the extent to which their um, religious faith might have shaped the revolution. Uh, Historians uh, disagree about the extent to which that was true. I think there's some influence on the revolution. But of course, as we all know, as historians, the founders do not agree Uh, on a lot of things, and they certainly don't agree on the place of religion in the founding. Some of the founders uh, did not really think that there should be much influence at all per se. But one of the things that I think is important is that even though evangelicalism has been around in the United States since that really early period, it's changed considerably over time. So if we think about the influence of evangelicalism, say, in the Civil War, of course, there are evangelicals who are ardent abolitionists and evangelicals who are using their belief in the Bible to justify continuing the institution of slavery and rebelling against the country to do that. So it really varied. In terms of foreign policy, I actually think it's most helpful to think about what we are so, what we sometimes call neo-evangelicals. So modern evangelicalism started to come about starting in about 1942. We often pinpoint that as a key day because that's Uh, when the National Association of Evangelicals formed. And so there are groups um, like the NAE and others that start to coalesce around uh, sort of a new evangelicalism, partly out of a a goal to somewhat separate their movement from fundamentalists, uh, to be a little bit more, not exactly ecumenical, but maybe a little bit more open to the world around them. Um, And so folks like Billy Graham and some other key leaders start the magazine Christianity Today, which is quite influential. 
uh, and they formed another a, a number of other organizations in the 1940s and 1950s that represent, I think, a, what we might think of as a modern evangelicalism. And that's significant when we think about foreign policy, in part because this is also the period when we might think of the United States really stepping onto the world stage and then staying there. So, of course, the United States had intervened in major world events earlier. They intervened in World War One, but they then tended, U.S. leaders then tended to pull back from the world stage. But after World War II, the United States uh, really, uh, you know, becomes the superpower uh, that it wants to be. It, it actually stays out there. And this is where this is where the intersection of evangelicalism and U.S. foreign policy, I think, really gets its start. But Lauren, before we continue, could you maybe just distinguish evangelicalism from fundamentalism? Sure. For people who might not know. <laughs> yeah. So, so fundamentalists, um, they, I, I like to describe this as kind of like uh, the square versus rectangle thing, right? <laughs> so, so fundamentalists have many of the same beliefs that evangelicals have, but they believe things. That, they believe that the Bible is inerrant; it's literally true. Some evangelicals believe that and might identify as fundamentalists, but not all of them do. And I think that's one of the one of the key distinctions. So, so there's overlap, right? And they're kind of part of the same group, but they have some distinctions. Um, evangelicals are also very much um, kind of really focused on being in the world. They're really engaged with politics. Many fundamentalists, uh, pull, you know, there's some debate about this, but many of them tended to pull back after the Scopes Monkey trial. Uh, in the 1920s, they, they pulled back a little bit from politics. Um, and Graham, Billy Graham and the National Association of Evangelicals wanted to distinguish themselves from that and really take on more of a public role. And so it reflected their um, desire to be out in the world, to be engaging in politics, in global affairs in a way that maybe some fundamentalists at the time weren't. Of course, now there are many fundamentalists who are pretty engaged in politics. So as I say, there's overlap but they do have some fundamentally different beliefs. There's a difference between believing the Bible is inerrant and having author- having the Bible as having a key authority in your life. So you can see how that's it's a distinction. It's maybe not the biggest one, but for them, it's a pretty significant distinction. That, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, just uh, as you mentioned, just to point out, of course, 42 is when the United States enters World War too. Is there any connection between someone like Henry Luce and the evangelical community and the sense of American mission? I think I think it's really interesting to think about that time period because there's all of these looses looses I think speaking to some of these big ideas that are floating around about what the American role in the world should be and what kind of role you know evangelicals like Billy Graham and um, C.F. Henry like they are the, the people who founded Christianity Today they're really eager to kind of address that sense of a, what the role in the world should be one of the interesting things is that so the very first. Uh, issue of Christianity Today, which of course comes out later. It's coming out in, in 56, but it's reflecting some of these, the relationships between these folks and their sense of, of American mission. One of the things in that first issue that the, the editor wrote was about a concern about the spread of communism and the need for the United States and for Christians in the United States in particular to be at the forefront of promoting um, democracy and sort of core values globally. So if we think about what conversations are happening around World War II and the promotion of democracy and thinking about, um, you know, the United States, is the United States going to be a four policeman? What, what, is it, what is it going to be up to? Um, what kind of mission does it have? I think there's actually a lot of consonance among all of those folks, even though they're not, you, the extent to which they're, they're conversing with each other, I, I don't actually know. But 
there seems to be something in the air among some of these types. Uh, and I, I would put, you know, Billy Graham certainly in one of those categories as an influential Christian thinker at the time. Lauren, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more. We've, we've You've mentioned Billy Graham. Maybe talk a little bit more about the major players in this development, kind of the early uh, organizations or people who were particularly influential in kind of bringing evangelicals into politics. Sure. I mean, I think Graham is one of them. He's, of course, a really famous preacher, and he led an organization called um, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And so his group was really... Sponsor of American Prestige, actually. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> not the deal's not finalized yet, Danny. Don't. Screw <laughs> oh, damn it, it. producer Jay, cut that. I had to spend a lot of time talking to their lawyers to get uh, ability to publish the material that I looked at in their archives. So, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, I think the National Association of Evangelicals is big. Uh, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Um, may, you, you know, there will be a little later on the religious, the National Religious Broadcasters, so radio and TV, really key. Um, and so if we're thinking about early organizations, those are at the, you know, for me, those are at the top. There's also, you know, thinkers like Harold Lincel and Harold Okenga, who are just, you know, important evangelical thinkers writing for uh, Christianity Today and other magazines. And this is coming kind of in contrast to some of the other really influential uh, magazines of the time, thinking like the Catholic magazine Commonweal or Christianity in Crisis, which represents more of the like liberal Protestant perspective. So there's there's quite a lot of different religious perspectives uh, circulating in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, and and so they are all competing, uh, uh, you know, for hearts and minds in, in terms of defining what, what the world of religion should be in U.S. public life and then what that should look like for U.S. politics and foreign policy. So, Lauren, my understanding of the literature is that, you know, people like John Foster Dulles, you know, who grew up from uh, mainline Protestant communities were really the driving forces of U.S. foreign policy in the 40s and the 50s in particular, less so in the 60s and on, but particularly in that mid-century moment in the creation of yeah. the empire. What is the relationship between evangelicals and sort of these liberal Protestants and also I'm sure we could do a whole episode on this and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that this is the moment where someone like the historian David Hollinger would argue that basically mainline Protestantism ended and became secular liberalism. That a lot of the impulses behind Protestant Christianity, the mainline, were basically transmogrified into secular liberal impulses. So maybe you can talk about that. Yeah, they get they sort of get subsumed. I think this is where the chronology is really helpful. So evangelicals, you know, they're starting to form themselves as a sort of new evangelical movement in the 40s and 50s. But that doesn't mean that they have a lot of influence yet, because you're right. Dulles and other mainline Protestants um, are are kind of leading the way. And, and I'm, you know, I'm doing some work right now on some of the mainline Protestant um, members of Congress, like Walter Judd, right? They are the folks who are defining foreign policy, the, the sort of using religion to shape their sort of foreign policy perspective. And with a liberal sense of mission, right? With a sense of mission. Yeah, liberal, I mean, it's religion and liberal democratic capitalism. I think that's what what they're out for. The thing is, evangelicals in the 1940s and 50s, as a whole, outside of these these top guys, they don't necessarily see themselves as a political bloc, and they don't act or vote like one necessarily. That comes later. By the late 60s and, and into the early 70s, amidst other changes that are happening, evangelicals do start to coalesce as a political bloc that will eventually become a bloc that votes for Republicans. That's not necessarily the case in the 40s and 50s. It's quite varied. Um, and to the point where, you know, 
in the 19, you know, when Nixon is running for president and in his early first term, he's courting evangelicals, but he doesn't necessarily see them as a stalwart supporter of the Republican Party yet. He's courting a lot of different religious groups. By the time we get to the Ford and Carter years, though, they're actively courting evangelicals because they represent a potent force in politics. So there's some key things that start to change. And, and I think the foreign policy piece is what often gets ignored. A lot of people, if you talk about the rise of the religious right, that, that's what they associate with evangelicals. They're like, aha, Roe v. Wade, concerned about prayer in school. Um, folks who have read Randall Bomber and others are like, ah, yes, uh, tax exemptions for religious schools that discriminate based on race, right? And those are all domestic political issues that mobilize evangelicals and bring them really consistently into the fold of conservative politics in a way that makes them a strong political force. The foreign policy piece is interesting and important, though, because as all of that's happening, as they're mobilizing, there's something else happening with a different religious lobby, and that is uh, Jewish groups very concerned in the 1970s about Nixon's efforts to relax tensions with the Soviet Union to pursue detente because the Soviet Union is abusing uh, Jewish groups in that country. They're making all sorts of restrictions on their ability to emigrate freely. They're imposing really strong diploma taxes, just doing whatever they, and of course, there's a huge amount of anti-Semitism there. So they're suffering. And so in 1974, there's this debate that emerges in Congress over whether the United States should move forward with a new trade act that would provide grain sales and some other benefits to Russia, part of this broader policy that Nixon and Kissinger are pursuing of detente, which reflects their larger foreign policy aims. Jewish groups, um, as well as um, some key uh, collaborators in Congress, uh, Scoop Jackson from Washington um, and, and others, put together, and uh, uh, you know, Representative Vanek from Ohio, they put together this amendment to the Trade Act called the Jackson-Vanek Bill that would impose sanctions essentially restrict the ability of the country to freely trade with other countries that discriminate against uh, religious minorities, that put restrictions on immigration. And evangelicals watch, they see this, they see that there, that there are Jewish groups operating in Congress that are able to punish the Soviet Union for its abuses. And they say, literally, explicitly in, in sources, like, why aren't we doing this? We need to be doing this, too. There are so many persecuted Christians in the Soviet bloc. And then they do. So they start to coalesce around organizing on behalf of Christian dissidents in the Soviet Union who are dealing with a range of, of struggles. Yeah. So one of the classic arguments about the type of mothers on the right is that women in particular, correct me if I'm wrong, but housewives in particular are really crucial for organizing in favor of things like anti-equal rights amendment, anti-abortion, anti-Roe v. Wade. Is that also true in foreign policy? Is What's the gender dynamic here? Because it's so important for the yeah. right organization, the rights organization. Well, and it is really interesting because a lot of that happens in part due to this, you know, the built-in reality that, that is, you've got this group of folks who are always, they're at church reliably every week or two times a week. Um, often, it is often the women who attend church more. Church attendance among women is is higher. And so that's part of it. With the foreign policy stuff, I actually um, mostly saw, it was mostly male leaders advocating. So many of the people who started organizations on behalf of persecuted Christian were men. But many of the people doing the work of sending out letters and organizing 
vigils and setting up letter writing campaigns. Those are women. So there are women involved. They're doing kind of behind the scenes grunt work. Some of them are going to testify before Congress. There are a lot of uh, dissidents who came to the United States as refugees and then testified before Congress, and many of them were women. Um, some of them set up, uh, sh- there were a number of them that set up shop uh, around Wheaton College, which is an evangelical college in Illinois. And so there were like the Slavic Gospel Association and others were there. And there were women, there were a lot of women involved with that work. So they're there. They're not taking the same leadership roles as say, uh, Phyllis Schlafly was Catholic, but say like Phyllis Schlafly leading the Stop Era movement. I'm curious, Lauren, this is interesting that that it, it, it took until the 70s for evangelicals to really get into the foreign policy game with respect to Christians in, in the Soviet bloc. It would seem like there's sort of a natural affinity here with communism being, you know, essentially uh, atheistic or, or very coded as atheistic, certainly the Soviet Union, uh, in, in discourse in the United States. It would seem like there was a natural role for evangelicals to play during the Red Scare, during kind of the, the meat of the, the panic over communism. Did, was there anything like that happening or, or were they oh, just yeah. not enough of a political force to, to matter? They, they absolutely were. They were testifying before Congress early on. Um, there were all sorts of pamphlets coming out in the first Red Scare that were written by evangelicals. Uh, and of course, there's a lot of their testimony during the 1940s and 50s with that, you know, McCarthyism. So they're absolutely testifying and they're engaged. That is not an issue that was new to them in the 1970s. They'd been involved in, in, um, their concern about Christians being persecuted abroad for a long time. What changes is that they're suddenly much more politically powerful because of their connections with this rising religious right. Because they're part of this larger movement, they're starting to see themselves as having a a particular political identity where maybe that was a little fuzzier before. So the seventies, I, I, this is why like it's, it's connected deeply to the rise of the religious right in the sense that that gives them power and particular attention that they maybe didn't have before. I mean, in the seventies, you know, time magazine and, uh, Newsweek, you know, 1976, there's all these cover articles about it being the year of the evangelical and everybody's born again. So suddenly there's a lot more visibility on it than I think there had been. Um, and so they become this, this, this political force that maybe they weren't as much before, perhaps in part because of the, the power earlier of mainline Protestantism. Um, I, just, I think there's this shift that happens uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. And then, of course, the evangelical who becomes president is not a member of the of the religious right, but Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Um, so how does that play into the story? And, and this might make sense, uh, and we'll do this longer in your book, but this might make sense to bring up sort of the human rights 1970s issue. Yeah. So initially, they're really excited. Here is this uh, born-again Christian who's going to be in the White House, and they're really at the outset of Carter's presidency. They think that he's going to be a champion for persecuted Christians in the Soviet Union, they actually really think that he's going to take the lead and be a vocal uh, proponent for those folks, uh, get some of these prisoners freed, for example. Um, And he does, but he's mostly working behind the scenes. So he's not making the kind of loud statements against the Soviet Union that they would like to see. He's, of course, coming out very forcefully against authoritarian regimes at least rhetorically anyway, um, he's coming out very forcefully. And so evangelicals grow quite disillusioned with Carter over the course of his presidency because he's not the specific supporter that he hoped they, you know, that they hoped he would be. And part of the problem is in welcoming, you know, he, he's able to get some evangelical dissidents freed from the Soviet Union, but they really want him to push to make 
to put pressure on the Soviet Union so its internal structure changes, because what they're hoping for is more religious freedom in the Soviet Union so people can evangelize there. Um, not necessarily that the few people who, you know, that a few people can get out, but that people can practice their religion, that they can teach their faith to their children, which at the time was not allowed. And could you talk maybe for a second about human rights? Because I think this mm-hmm. is really important and this is what you wrote your book on. So where are you on the, the great debate about human rights? Does it go back to antiquity? Is it 1948 or is it the 1970s, the last utopia? I think it's a, I'm going to give an unsatisfying answer that I think it's a process. So, so a lot of the core ideas are, are fairly early. We can see some of them in antiquity. We see some of them developed more in the Scottish enlightenment. So they're floating around, but that those are their ideas, right? You need to give them force. So 1948 starts to put them into international agreements. And that's, that's, and that's the UN universal declaration of yes. human rights for people who don't know. Sorry. Yeah. So, and so that's exciting, but putting it down in a UN declaration does not make it actually enforceable and it doesn't make it a norm. So there has to be a process by which you actually put that into practice. And I think that's where the seventies comes in and becomes a really significant shift because through the work of dissident groups and non-government organizations, we start to see uh, pressure put on governments that are um, abrogating human rights, that that pressure starts to make human rights a norm, even if it's a norm mostly in breach. And then it's only later in the 90s when we start to see actual prosecutions through the International um, Criminal Court for things like genocide and human rights abuses more definitively that that, that. it's it's just a pro- it's an unfolding process. I think human rights as a norm that's more set now in part due to the 1970s, but we obviously have a long way to go. There's enormous human rights abuses everywhere, but at least they're recognized now as a as an affront to international law. Do evangelicals make use of the discourse of human rights? Yes, and so that's really significant. So one of one of the things that they're observing with the Jewish groups that are fighting against the Soviet Union is the use of human rights language. And so evangelicals also begin to articulate a vision for human rights. It is a different vision than the vision that say Amnesty International is putting forth. Their vision for human rights is quite capacious. It includes Amnesty International, right? They're thinking about not just right, uh, you know, against uh, you know bodily harm, but they they also advocate for for broader rights, uh, social social rights, economic justice, that sort of thing. Evangelicals have a very narrowly focused view of human rights, and it really is centered on religious freedom. Um, and what they start to formulate is a vision for human rights that says religious freedom is the first human right. If you don't have freedom of conscience, the freedom to have a faith and practice it, then you don't have any other rights. How could you have other rights? And for them in particular, what other rights could there be if you can't be saved and therefore get eternal freedom in the afterlife? Uh, and so that becomes their articulation of human rights that they put out there really strongly, uh, particularly during the Reagan years. And that view of human rights has become very influential. Um, it's Again, it's a really narrow perspective on rights, but it is a human rights vision that they have. And so they, they push really hard for that vision during the Reagan years, particularly with the Soviet Union, uh, trying to put pressure on the Soviet Union to relax its religious restrictions. By the 1990s, they're actually a key player in the passage of the 1998 International Religious Freedom Act, which sets up uh, an agency within the State Department to promote religious freedom as a core part of U.S. foreign relations. And most recently, during the Trump administration, Mike Pompeo commissioned this uh, 
Commission on Inalienable Rights that set forth to define what U.S. foreign policy should promote in terms of rights and values. And it stated up front that the two core primary values that the U.S. should be promoting are property values and human and uh, religious freedom. And Mike Pompeo, of course, is an evangelical. So you can see it. I mean, there, this is part of a long line that starts in the 70s with the articulation of this conservative evangelical vision and is still with us and has shaped U.S. human rights policy, I think, in significant ways. Basically, you, you, you might be killed. We don't really care about that. But but as long as you get to keep your house and you get to go to the afterlife of your choice, uh, that's cool. We're good. Well, I mean, essentially, like as long, you know, we I, I think a lot of this, too, is like uh, they would like to be able to go and evangelize in countries where they can't uh, because they believe that they have a a God-given responsibility to share their faith with the entire world. And because of that responsibility, they need to evangelize. They need to share their faith everywhere. And there are countries that are closed to them, and that abridges their religious liberty. They want to make sure they can evangelize, and that people in those countries who are Christian can also evangelize their own people. Uh, they In the 1960s and 70s, they also sort of begin to uh, talk about the problem of cultural imperialism, and they're trying to figure out how to grapple with that uh, in a somewhat imperfect way. <laughs> so I'm, I was being flippant before, but I, I, I do want to ask you about this. The, as, as it's become manifest through uh, the last 20 years, especially under the Trump administration, I think, this notion that religious freedom and specifically Christian religious freedom is the most important value abroad has led to things like you mentioned in your article, Ted Cruz openly calling for the uh, admission of Syrian Christian refugees while we exclude Syrian Muslim refugees. It's it's led to things where it feels like quite literally the policy here is freedom of worship is more important than like not being tortured or not being killed. Uh, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about kind of the, I would call that a warping of human rights discourse, but but how it, it's sort of changed human rights discourse in, in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's really important to keep in mind is because of, of what I was talking about earlier, the fact that human rights becomes a norm gradually. It's a process, and it's a process that happens in part because of grassroots activism. We need to keep in mind that how we even understand human rights is something that was always in flux. Uh, so there was debate about what human rights entailed. And evangelicals seized on a piece of it. And I think they're genuine in their concern about uh, religious freedom and the persecution of Christians abroad. And they, But because of their particular political beliefs and their particular religious beliefs, they also were able to, um, in their own sort of mind, justify what we would think of as being really brutal attacks on human rights in, say, uh, authoritarian regimes as acceptable because those regimes were not communist. And so I'm thinking in particular in Central America and Guatemala, um, they lend a lot of support to an evangelical dictator named Rios Montt in the 19, early 1980s. Uh, and a lot of the language that they use, uh, you know, they say, well, he's, a, he's an evangelical, he's going to promote religious freedom, he's going to fight back communism, and therefore he's a supporter of human rights. Meanwhile, he's literally committing a genocide against the Mayan people, uh, for which he stood trial, right? Like, there's no question that a genocide happened. So how do they reconcile that? Well, in for their mind, 
if religious freedom is first, yeah, this other stuff, it'll get sorted out later, right? That, that if you can at least kind of push back communism, maybe the country is authoritarian, but, but kind of in line with some of the beliefs of the Reagan administration, authoritarian countries might eventually become democracies and, and respect other human rights, but a totalitarian state in their mind, never going to change. We have to do something about it. So it's a particular, you know, that's their kind of particular take on it. But but yeah, absolutely. It allows them to not uh, not see the brutal murder of people, physical torture, disappearances, imprisonment as being as serious to them as the persecution of Christians or when Christians are facing that in a totalitarian or otherwise, quote, hostile state. So let's move on a little bit, because in my layperson's imagination, Two things are really important to the developing evangelical influence in U.S. foreign policy. First is the end of the Cold War, and second is the 1994 Republican victory in Congress in the contract with America. Mm-hmm. Um, can we maybe talk about those, and then, and then we could go to the greatest evangelical president of all time, George W. Bush. <laughs> Sure. Um, so the, the end of the Cold War is very exciting for evangelicals. They uh, flood into the Soviet Union to try to evangelize. They're actually invited uh, by um, by Gorbachev to come in and to talk about civil society. So they see this as a grand opportunity to evangelize. They're not the only ones. There are a number of other faith groups that go in as well. Um, but they're, they're excited about it for that reason. But they then, that doesn't mean that there aren't any threats to Christians globally. Of course, they start to shift their focus to persecution that Christians are facing. I mean, they were already focusing on this, but they, they focus on Christians facing persecution in China, in North Korea, and in parts of the Middle East. And that becomes um, something of concern to them. The other piece of this that I think is important in terms of thinking about their foreign policy, of course, is that you mentioned 1994 and the, the contract with America. Uh, of course, all this time, domestic evangelical political organizers are pushing against, you know, they're doing everything they can to um, undermine abortion access, uh, to push for um, restrictions on LGBTQ plus Americans. Um, and by, you know, with with this uh, 1994, you know, Republican uh, takeover of Congress, it's, it's emboldening. And we start to see more of that emphasis in terms of their foreign policy. Um, and so, you know, a lot of what I was seeing earlier, you know, in the in the 1970s and 1980s, they really are very focused in terms of their foreign policy on the religious freedom stuff. By the 1990s, I think due to their organizing and some of the um, the attention that they're getting at home on these issues, we're starting to see that filter out into foreign policy as well. In 73, Jesse Helms had he had a, a, made an amendment to the Foreign Assistance Act that uh, restricted the United States from funding abortion services abroad. Now, this came before evangelicals were a super organized force on this issue. Um, at the time, like the early 70s, it was really Catholics who were organizing most consistently against abortion, but they, they start to come along by the mid-70s. So this slightly predates it, but it becomes a really useful tool for evangelicals as they become really identified with the anti-abortion movement. Republican administration sees on this as a way to kind of speak to evangelical interests because um, evangelicals were often disappointed with what Republican presidents were willing to do on abortion at home. So they're they're pretty disappointed with Reagan, but abroad you know, Reagan puts in place this Mexico City policy that prohibited organizations from getting 
funding if they provide abortions. People couldn't even talk about it. Like organizations that provided healthcare couldn't even talk about abortion as an option under this uh, policy, which is why we refer to it as the global gag rule. Um, and so Republican presidents would kind of expand this, uh, these, these efforts whenever they were in office, and then Democratic presidents would remove it. But, but to me, it looks like a way for these presidents who, prior, you know, prior to most, what has happened most recently, uh, not really willing to, to go all the way, like this was a way for them to kind of signal to their evangelical base that, hey, I, I we hear you on this, and here's what we're doing. We're kind of going to do it in the foreign policy sphere. But of course, that had really devastating effects for women you know, who are struggling abroad and who can't get the health care they need. I wonder if you can uh, talk a little bit more about this, because this really does seem like a, a sea change. And I, I think um, it's interesting. You're sort of putting it in, in 94, kind of in the, the Republican wave election. But there is a shift from, you know, we are interested in kind of influencing the U.S. government to do things to protect Christians overseas. And now it's, we're, we ourselves, evangelical organizations ourselves are going and, you know, the, the thing you lead off your, your article with, we're going over and advising the government of Ghana how to persecute mm-hmm. LGBTQ people most efficiently. This, this really seems like a shift in, in sort of the, the focus or the, the operations of these groups. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about how that, that happened. Yeah, and I think some of this might be, some of this might to some extent be a generational change. Um, so I'm thinking of groups like, uh, you know, Samaritan's Purse and, and Franklin Graham uh, and others like that. So um, another potential sponsor of the pod, by the way, Franklin, <laughs> if you're out there. Um, we, we love your stories, your, your crazy personal life. Just, you know, come on board. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, no, so I, I think, um, so, so there are these, um, I think one of the things that's really key is that there are efforts on the part of, of evangelicals. I think they are emboldened, you know, after Reagan's presidency, I think they're emboldened as a movement. And so it, moving into the 1990s and beyond, they are eager to see their particular vision for, uh, morality and their take on, what is what they see as acceptable in terms of sex and sexuality and gender role, they uh, seem to be much more emboldened to try to impose that not just on the United States, but abroad. Um, I will be clear that's, you know, there are a range of different organizations. So, you know, there's, there are U.S. evangelical humanitarian aid organizations that are operating throughout the world. Some of them like World Vision um, are, seem to be hewing more closely to the government's, uh, the government provides funding to a lot of these organizations. They, are, they act as distributors for USAID money, for example, because they're there on the ground doing healthcare, that sort of thing. They are theoretically not supposed to be evangelizing with money that they receive uh, from the government. And so for the most part, that's, that's the case. And some groups like World Vision, I think, are attempting to keep it separate. Others like Samaritan's Purse, which are much more conservative, um, they, I, I think the line gets blurred a lot more. And so Samaritan's Purse, you know, they're bringing with them a particular perspective of what morality looks like. They're meeting up with like-minded people in some of the countries in which they're operating in, and they are then providing support and um, in both moral and financial support to some of those individuals. Um, and I, I think that's where some of this is coming from. And so there's all sorts of initiatives that they're engaged in 
you know, whether that's preventing disease like malaria or trying to help, uh, you know, prevent HIV and AIDS. Uh, but it also provides them a place where they can kind of come in and spread their faith if they're perhaps a little less scrupulous. Uh, and I think Samaritan's Purse falls into that purview. And so what we start to see in some of the countries where, where those more conservative organizations are really, really active is that they're emboldening really conservative actors within those states. So Ghana is a good example, but it's not the only country in Africa where these evangelical groups are operating and lending just tremendous support to their anti-LGBTQ policies or their anti-abortion policies. And so countries like Sudan, Ghana, and elsewhere have put in place really harsh punishments, not just for people who are LGBTQ+, but even for organizations that support them and their allies. So it's a tremendous crackdown, again, led by people within the country, but clearly supported by these evangelical organizations that are operating there and, and I think, you know, lending, again, moral and financial support. We haven't talked, uh, we've talked a little bit about the Middle East, but I think there's more to be mined here in terms of evangelicals and their role in recent, certainly recent events in the Middle East. Um, let's save the, the, the big one, Israel-Palestine, for, for <laughs> a, my next question. But um, can you talk a little bit about um, sort of the, the influence that evangelicals had in the post-Gulf War U.S. fixation on Saddam Hussein and, and particularly the Iraq Liberation Act in 1998, kind of, um, you know, kind of influencing the, the, the PNAC crowd or the, the, the neoconservative crowd in their uh, approach to the region? Oh, so that's a really interesting question. I, I don't know as much about that. So a lot of the work that I've done has looked at their involvement in places like Lebanon in the 1980s, um, not so much the more recent stuff. So that's a great question that I, I don't have a great answer for. Um, yeah, I would, I would be interested to know. <laughs> the reason that I was curious about that, Lauren, is because when I was coming up, I, and I think this is around the same time you were coming up, the fate of Christians in the Middle East became like really important to evangelicals. Yeah. So I was curious if this was anything on their minds in the run up in, in the nineties, you know, was the, the Iraq liberation act. I would be surprised if evangelicals didn't want to you know, have religious freedom there. So I was just curious oh, if oh, maybe that foreshadowed. Yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. No. So, so definitely. So they, I mean, a lot of the work, uh, or the, uh, uh, materials that I've looked at, they, they refer to, uh, the Middle East broadly as, uh, as hostile societies, uh, because it is, first of all, because they couldn't evangelize there. So they saw them as places that were not open to religious liberty and therefore a concern for them, but also because they were places where Christians were being persecuted. And that's, so the Middle East and parts of Africa, uh, and so they're, they actually are really, interestingly, they're, they're very involved in organizing on behalf of Coptic Christians in parts of Africa where they were facing persecution from Muslims. So yes, I, so yes, I think they are concerned about that. And they might see, again, I'm, I'm speculating, but I suspect they would have been concerned about Christians, you know, Iraqi Christians who would have, you know, religious minority facing persecution. That is typically how they frame it as these, we've got these religious minorities in these Middle Eastern states in Northern Africa and across uh, and, and elsewhere. And there, and, and in parts of, of Asia as well, that they're worried about. Uh, and so, yeah, for sure. And, and that's also, I think some of the support, there's broad support for refugees among different evangelical groups. Or, there are there are evangelical organizations that are really deeply engaged with refugee resettlement in the United States. I think broadly white evangelicals in the United States as a laity 
a lot, much less supportive they tend to be um, opposed to to refugees. But I think that's a it's important to keep in mind that there are some really key um, evangelical groups working on refugee resettlement, and they're often interested in not just but certainly supporting Christians who are fleeing from persecution in again states they consider to be hostile. So yeah, that that, that makes sense. Yeah. All right, so so let's let's get into it then. Israel Palestine. Um, this is one of the areas where I think people are aware of the influence that evangelicals have, but I, I feel like it gets lost sometimes. There's the constant talk about the Israel lobby and the power of the Israel lobby, which is certainly a powerful lobby, but less attention I think gets gets placed on the role that evangelicals play in the desire to support Israel, uh, effectively, my understanding is so that it can be destroyed at the end of days, but, uh, you know, whatever your motives are, I guess. Uh, but can you talk about the role that, that the evangelical community has played in, in formulating that, uh, that policy? Absolutely. Um, and, and I would like to say, yeah, often when we talk about evangelicals and foreign policy, Israel is the first thing that comes up. And a lot of people have heard like, oh, this is all about prophecy beliefs that, the Jews must return to Israel and then the end times will come and basically yeah, Israel will be destroyed. And there are certainly Christian Zionists who, who hold those beliefs, but it's actually, there's, there's a lot more going on than just that. So it's more than that. And there's a, a great book, which if it's okay, if I can uh, mention this uh, from a scholar named Dan Hummel. Dan Hummel. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're going to have him on in the future. Yeah. I yeah. highly recommend uh, Covenant Brothers. I think it provides a really nuanced view of, of what was happening. And one of the things that Dan talks about is how um, evangelicals back into the 40s were involved with with uh, concern for Israel. And there are folks who set up schools there and they're they're deeply engaged. One of the things that he talks about is that some of that support for Israel comes from this core idea that 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 Christians are supposed to pray for Jerusalem. So there's supposed to be this special. So so Israel has a special covenant relationship with God. Christ, you know, these evangelicals should be supporting Israel because of that covenant relationship. And so that that support has taken some interesting uh, turns over the course of history. Thinking about some some key turning points, like 1967 is being a turning point in that sense that like maybe Israel is also a, a potential kind of powerful entity in the Middle East to serve other purposes, and that may also have shaped their their interest in supporting Israel. Certainly, most recently, uh, their evangelicals have been have been really strong proponents of providing military and financial aid to Israel. Uh, and of course, they're very supportive of the conservative leadership there. Uh, and, and some of that may also be rooted in the, the ability that the, that Israel has to potentially uh, act as a, a know, spoiler to some of the objectives of the states around it. But, you know, during the Trump administration, you know, they moved the U S embassy uh, to Jerusalem. And part of that is because like evangelicals had been calling for something like that. Daniel actually has an essay on that very issue coming out in an edited oh, volume he? that I co-edited that basically goes, uh, it's the history of the embassy issue yeah. in U.S. foreign relations, which uh, I, I think people should look out for. Um, should so, out for Dan there. is like the guy to talk to about this because he, you know, he really knows the stuff well. Um, I just think it's, I think it's interesting that they're they're deeply engaged with this and that Trump has been so much like, oh, I'm doing so much for the evangelicals. Look at all the stuff I did for them in Israel. And it's like, oh, geez. And then all the anti-Semitism that comes with that. 
Uh, So, Lauren, why don't we end on this question? I don't think we have time to go into George W. Bush on the war on terror. We'd love to have you back to discuss that um, and your essay next time, too. But what's, in my, again, layperson's understanding, they don't like Clinton because of all the sex stuff and he (laughs) doesn't like that. But what do evangelicals think of the Clinton foreign policy? What do they think? Is there, do they have an opinion of NAFTA? Do they have uh, an opinion of the, uh, of, of the various interventions that Clinton did toward the end of his administration? Okay, so a few interesting things. So, so of course, the International Religious Freedom Act is something that gets passed during the Clinton administration. So they're there at the table having those, dis- liter- quite literally at the table having those discussions. So I think they're very happy to see the passage of that. You know, it is it is unclear exactly exactly how they feel about the Clinton interventions and in some cases, lack of interventions. I will say um, it is interesting that so the Clinton administration famously withdrew all of its people from Rwanda during the genocide. The only American who was there was a Seventh Day Adventist missionary. And, you know, I don't know if folks have seen um, any of the doc- you know, there are some documentaries on on this, but it would in which. He, this man, Carl Wilkins, speaks, but his presence is 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 just the presence alone of an, of an American is enough to stop at least the, the slaughter of some number of people. And so I think there is a strong critique of the Clinton administration for its decision, not just to, to pull its people out, but to refuse to even call it a genocide as it was happening, because if they had, it would have required them to actually intervene and just the moral cowardice that was there. And I think there was that critique made at the time. There's a similar critique to be made of how well it handled, you know, how well the Clinton administration did not handle what was happening in the Balkans at the time. I mean, but in terms of what evangelicals are talking about, most of their advocacy that I was seeing during the Clinton years are is really around getting this International Religious Freedom Act passed. That seems to be a core focus. And then, of course, their, their you know, frustration that they have when you know, with, with efforts to, to restore funding for, for abortion services or supporting abortion abroad. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot to critique in when you talk about the Clinton administration's foreign policy. Uh, um, okay, first of all, how dare you? No. <laughs> and second of all, how dare you? Uh, Lauren Turek, Thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back. Everyone check out her writing, check out her book. She's also on Twitter. Uh, So yeah, thank you for joining us and we'll see you soon. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.